Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. One of the things that was really instilled in me as a priest and going through seminary formation was the value of spiritual reading, not only reading academically for coursework and such, but reading some of the great spiritual classics from masters of the tradition and reading other spiritual works that might speak to the heart, spark conversion, and change my life. And when I happened upon Jessica Hooten Wilson's uh, Twitter page and started following her and seeing all the content she was putting out, I was very enthusiastic about a book that she had just written called Reading for the Love of God. And I knew that it was a conversation I wanted to have here on this podcast, How They Love Mary, simply to talk about the value of spiritual reading and to gain more insights. And especially as we look forward to the summer months coming along, uh, people are going to pick up maybe a few more books. And how can maybe just ordinary fiction too lead us to knowing and loving God? And so uh, I'm very excited to have Jessica with me today. Uh, she uh, hosts a podcast herself called The Scandal of Reading, Pursuing Holy Wisdom from Christ and Pop Culture, which I'm going to have to check out. And she is a professor at Pepperdine University, uh, a visiting scholar there. So thanks so much, uh, Jessica, for joining me today. Yes, thank you again for inviting me. Yeah, maybe just to start out. So as we're talking about spiritual reading, um, how did you fall in love with this topic so much that you actually wanted to write a book about it? <laughs> it actually grew out of my classes. I've been a professor for almost two decades. And when I began, I wanted to start teaching because I loved literature and I loved all the things that literature showed me about how the world was, who God was, how a human person is made some of the ideals we can look for, some of those big questions we can ask. And I loved all these things. And I was finding my students were coming in with a lot of baggage that was preventing them from reading in that same way. They were not reading to love God more. They were not reading to understand their neighbor more. They were coming in and they were trying to check a box with my class for their yeah. degree. <laughs> and, and I thought that's not, that's not the point of my class. That would be such a small point for my class. And so I had I had to find ways as a teacher to bring them to the love of God that I found in literature and show them how to do that. And after decades of doing so, you know, the more and more that I would speak at things like the Well-Read Moms Book Club and talk to women about how to read literature for the love of God and, and talk to, you know, classical educators, so Christian teachers about, okay, this is how you would do this in the class. It started to make sense to me to put it together, to put it into one place where all of that could be part of the Christian tradition could showcase what it meant for for the church as a whole. And as you introduce people to reading, then uh, they do pick up some of the classics. Maybe they read some of these great spiritual works. So, what would be the purpose of reading with a spiritual mindset, and maybe in particular reading a spiritual book? Yeah. So I think of Colossians, where whatever work you do, you do for the glory of God. Reading should be included in that. So reading can also be a spiritual practice. I think reading even has a greater priority than some of the other work that we do for the Lord because God spoke creation into existence. Yeah. Jesus calls himself the word of God. There's an emphasis placed on God's revelation through written words. So there's a primacy in the Christian vocation to be people of the book. 
So when I wanted to introduce people to this way of reading, I, f- I felt like it was a spiritual practice. It was part of our life as Christians. It was not merely a calling for self-improvement or, or just education. It was more about how do you live into the sanctification to which you've been called, right? How do you practice reading in such a way that it has that work on you? And a lot of this is spiritual classics, you know, day doctrina. I talk about day doctrina. I talk about Julian of Norwich's revelations, but also works of literature. I talk about the speeches of Frederick Douglass and the plays of Dorothy L. Sayers and some of these things in which Christians were using their talents and they were coming up with different ways of making culture that also showed us who God was through the written word. One of the things that I really appreciated from your approach is that, of course, we have this great wealth of spiritual reading. So many people have written books over the centuries, but really the first book you begin with is that of the scriptures, that of the Holy Bible, Mm -hmm. that really that's the origin of our spiritual reading. And then as we read other things, it's almost as if we read them from that lens of Holy Scripture, that the themes that we see in scripture. And this is something that I I do a lot. I do some movie reviews and Mm -hmm. uh, write about that and such. And I'm always looking kind of for the Christian message, even in a secular movie. And how is this movie communicating to me a message about God? Or how does it parallel the scriptures? Or is it a redemption story? So what's the interplay of the Bible in terms of spiritual reading? So when I look at the Old Testament, you have, in a sense, like Act 1. And if you look at Genesis in in particular, God is speaking face-to-face with Abraham, with Jacob, with Isaac. And then as he speaks to Moses face-to-face, but he starts to build the people, he has to transfer that into the written word, the scriptures, in order to call the church to a way of being that was no longer just Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, but it extends beyond to the church. And so the written word takes on a new role in the life of the community. So that's that's the Old Testament. That's God's personal way of speaking with us. And then in the New Testament, you can see like Act 2, here come the Gospels, here come the letters, here come the foundations of the early church, God preparing his people through that written word. Well, now we're in Act 3, and we are not adding to the scriptures, but we are still being called to participate through written word, through making films, through making art, through making music in order to glorify God and showcase his revelation to people in the church. We we still have that personal response that God's asking for us. We're just in a different act when it comes to the whole history of salvation. So I think if we don't pay enough attention to act one and act two, we're going to get act three wrong. Sure. That makes sense. And uh, one of the things too, as, um, you know, we read these different books out there and, and looking for the spiritual lesson. You mentioned in your book, uh, Reading for the Love of God, uh, how certain certain books that we read communicate that. So, for example, you even reference Harry Potter and in some Catholic circles, Harry Potter is very controversial. Is it a gateway to evil? That's not the question that we're going to be addressing here. But you say, for example, that Harry Potter is a fable of sin and darkness to choose sacrifice, um, to have friendship and generosity and such. And um, you learn forgiveness, you said also from Dostoevsky and How to Die Well from another book. And so um, there's these lessons then that we take away. So how can we find that in just ordinary books that we're reading? 
Yeah, I think so. This is from most of the parameters for this conversation come from St. Basil. He addresses young scholars, right? At the time, it would have been young monks in the fourth century. And he's talking to them about why would you read anything besides the Bible? Why read Homer? Why, why read Plato and Ovid? And he says, we're, we're trying to c- collect travel supplies for eternity. And so what he tells them is he says, look in these pagan works for the things that accord with scripture. Hmm. And that's why I choose Harry Potter, because it is so controversial. What parts of it accord with scripture or not leave behind the things that don't correlate with the scriptures and what they tell us to be like but pull the travel supplies for eternity from, from the riches that you find there, right? Take the things that will help you as resources on your journey towards the beatific vision. There was another point that you brought out and uh, I, I didn't write down, you know, what the book was, but it was something that I had never really considered, I think. And, and it Of course, when we read and one of the things you draw out is kind of this discipline of Lexio Divina, how we, mm-hmm have this holy reading coming from the monastic tradition, you sit with it, and then you pray with the scripture. So really a way that we pray with scripture, but you actually propose that as you read a work, and a spiritual book, that kind of makes sense, but even as you read uh, just ordinary fiction, that it can actually move you to say a prayer that maybe it stirs within, and then it has you cry out to God. So how can we be attentive to maybe how a book is moving us to pray and to talk with God. Yeah. You know, the openings of the spirit to be able to work through almost anything, but especially works written, written by Christians, most of all those who, you know, people like um, I would say Shakespeare, (laughs) but of course Dante was, you know, didn't hide his faith there. Uh, Michael O'Brien is probably a contemporary voice in the Christian circles. Who's writing works along these lines. And so you have, you have fiction that is being gifted to God, right? The, the the writer recognizes the gift that he or she has received and is wanting to give it to the church and is wanting to call the church to places of repentance, to heart change, to metanoia, and is doing so through storytelling, right? Is really imitating the way that Christ told parables to get through to his listeners, yeah. to nudge them into awakening. And now these Christians are imitating God in that and, and doing it for our time and for our place. And when we listen to that and when we humbly receive that, I do believe that we get we get called to vision to what C.S. Lewis calls glimpses of heaven through poetry and literature. You just mentioned C.S. Lewis. Are there other authors that might do this well that can mm-hmm. lead us uh, into this spiritual conversation? Yeah. So I also mentioned uh, Michael O'Brien. You know, there's, there's quite a few, actually. So I mentioned Ernest Gaines in my book, uh, quite a bit. I love some of his his novels, even though he's not a Christian. He's one of those who writes with Christ almost haunting him from behind, you know, mm. in the same way that Flannery O'Connor was ha- haunted. So we have Flannery O'Connor, we have Walker Percy, um, we have some living writers like Kristen Valdez Cade, Bill Cly, um, Chris Beha. We have Leaf Anger, so some of these, you know, some that are that seem vulgar and crazy, but you can still find God there like George Saunders. So I would say that there's quite a few, there's, there's more out there than we recognize and we need to amplify their voices when we find them. Now, one of the things I realize is that I've written books, you've written books. There are lots of people out there who are writing books and I'm writing from a spiritual perspective. You're writing from a spiritual perspective. You go into Barnes and Noble, it's filled with books. 
any genre you're interested in. Do you mm. think there are too many books out there in the world? Is there kind of this proliferation of, of publishing and is that detrimental or or is there room for all of these books that that you and I and others are writing? Oh, I'm going to give your theologian answer, both and. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, I mean, a lot of books that should never be published are published, right? And so it makes it a lot more difficult to sift through the noise and find the things that are out there. And most of the judgment is going to be according to time. I I think I've gotten used to the idea that my calling is to speak to the current generation. I'm less of a prophet of distances, uh, as Flannery O'Connor was. I'm, I don't know that my works are going to be read hundreds of years from now, but I'm going to trust that when the book leaves my hands, it's finding the readers God wants it to find at the time that they need to find it. And if I can trust that process, then it doesn't matter if there's a proliferation. It doesn't matter that there's so many people writing books out there. Um, I can only do what I've been called to do and hope God does something with it. So with all the books out there and, you know, I get magazines all the time from different uh, catalogs and, you know, these are our latest books for the spring or for the summer or whatever. And so you have to sift through that and you have to find a book that might interest you. So how does a person choose a book? Oh, that's hard. (laughs) So I feel like choosing books is like choosing friends. And so there's not a formulaic way of doing it. There's some things that are trustworthy guides. You know, you there are some teachers that you you always want to recommend. I recommend Virgil without hesitation. I recommend Augustine. I you know, I recommend Anna Akhmatova or someone like that. There's some some trustworthy guides that we can look to the past. And so if you want to be on sure footing, the dead writers and the old writers are the way to go. <laughs> right? But then when it comes to the new writers, who are those voices that that scandalize you in a good way? And what I mean by scandal there is how the New Testament uses it sometimes, where it's um, foolishness in the world's eyes, right? But it's the wisdom of God. What are those writers that really make you conceive differently of some of the cultural norms you've assented to, or some of the world's ways of being that you have found yourself habitually giving into? And they call you to something better and higher. And those are the kinds of friends. Those are the kind of teachers, the books that you should cling to and find more in that tribe and that family. Um, and a lot of times you'll you'll see that reading one author like Dorothy L. Sayers will lead you to reading C.S. Lewis, will lead you to reading Chesterton or, you know, vice versa. And I think you have to kind of trace those paths and get to know that company. One of the things that I've seen as I've read books and there's speak about like people that have influenced you or someone you'd always read, like in Catholic theology, there's one scholar I really like, Dr. Edward Suri. He writes a lot for popular audiences, but there was a time where maybe two years ago I was reading a book and I'm like, boy, this sounds like Dr. Sri wrote it. And mm-hmm. come to find out this person was formed and trained by Dr. Yeah. Sri. So you can almost see sometimes the influence that an author has on mm-hmm. another person. And I'm sure if people read something that I wrote, they might say, well, you know, he was influenced by this Marian theologian and that's why he ascribes to this thought or something like that. So I think that's always a unique uh, perspective uh, when you're able to look at a book and kind of trace that as well. Yeah, you know, I've actually had people write me and ask whether I studied with Ralph Wood or whether I studied with David Lyle Jeffrey. 
And, and it, I did, <laughs> I think it's, it's an obvious tell in my work that I'm just kind of carrying their mantle forward and picking up where they left off and, um, and hopefully adding to, to the things that they taught me. Now, I just have a few questions maybe about the practicalities of, of reading a book, maybe. So <laughs> as a scholar myself, a lot of times I'll write in the margins, I have a little code sometimes. So yeah. so if I'm reading a, a book on theology, I'm going to make a cross and an M if they make a reference to Mary. If it's the Eucharist, it's a circle and a cross in it or something like that. So uh, I have my own little code. Mm -hmm. uh, but is it okay? Do you recommend for people to write in books? Oh, well, I mean, I do. You know, C.S. Lewis, when he was writing a letter to his dad, he said that Professor Kirk had one great failure, and it was that he wrote in books, which <laughs> I think is, <laughs> is a problem because marginalia is a conversation with a text. So for me, you're really alert and active when you're engaging in conversation with the book. And I love reading the same book multiple times. So I love coming back to see, okay, I wrote in purple pen this time, or I wrote in pencil this time and to see what my previous notes were and then add to them over the years. So for example, my copy of Augustine's Confessions is over 20 years old from when the first time I wrote, wrote in it and I wrote in it as a student. So getting to see those notes and, and it's almost like I'm having... Uh, the presence come back to me of the author in a new way, right? Um, getting to have them in conversation a different way uh, the next time that I read it. Uh, how about audiobooks? So truth truth be told, I listened to your book on some car drives and was able to finish it. I'm a, I'm very much an audio learner in addition to uh, reading. Uh, so uh, like, I learn a lot from listening. So I don't think that I miss something if I'm listening to a book. But do you consider that reading if you're listening to a book? Absolutely. So majority of the tradition was actually reading meant listening. Those were the same activities. So especially in the early church, you know, there's that moment in Augustine's Confessions when Augustine sees Ambrose reading by himself. And he's like, how does he do that? Why would he do that? <laughs> like, why would you read mm. silently and alone? And now that's become the dominant way is that you sit alone, you read a text to yourself. And so we disparage those who are listening to it on, on audio, when in fact, that was a visceral experience that was prized by the church to get to hear the word of God, to know the words as they're being heard and embodied in a sense in the, in the way that you're listening and participating in that. Now, not everyone, now we're so accustomed to noise. Now, days, people are doing three or four things at a time while they're listening. They're not only listening. And so they may need both. My, my husband, mm. for example, he listens to it on audio, but he always wants the hard copy to reread before he goes to bed the chapters he listened to during the day. Oh, wow. Chapter, right? Yeah. Well, he really, he wants to solidify things and he goes a lot, he reads more slowly than I do um, and wants to take it all in. Yeah. And that's an interesting point too about reading meant to being listened to because if you visit a monastery for example if you visit a benedictine monastery or a cistercian trappist monastery and you're privileged to be able to dine with the monks what you'll experience is, is that they have table reading and so as everybody's eating dinner they're going 
through the rule of St. Benedict, usually they'll mm -hmm. read like a page of the rule of St. Benedict, but then they're reading a spiritual book and they're edifying the monks. And so not only do the monks read in their personal prayer and in their spirit, personal spiritual reading, but then also the community is saying, well, this is how I want to train you, or this is what you should be thinking about as well. So it is something that's really a part of, of the tradition. Yeah, Ron Hansen's novel, Marriott and Ecstasy. I don't know if you've read this. No. But it, it was about a woman who experiences the stigmata when she is um, in a convent. And yeah. it's the questions of the reality of it or not the reality of it. But what's beautiful is that you do get to see that her life within the convent, the practices of worship and the practices of labor and the practices of listening to reading at dinner and how all of these things are feeding into one another when it comes to the spiritual life of this one character. So and so there's an example of literature kind of bringing some of these experiences. So if people don't have a chance to visit a monastery or they don't have a chance to visit convents, right, getting to live vicariously through these literary characters and have these spiritual experiences through them. Yeah, going back to the audiobook too, uh, as a researcher, sometimes I've when I've wanted to write a chapter. So I wrote this book called How They Love Mary, and it's 28 profiles of different holy men and women, what they wrote, what they said, how they were devoted to Mary. And so uh, when I was writing the book, there were some people that I had listened to the audiobook uh, mm -hmm. previously. And so I had actually bookmarked different sections. For example, Mother Angelica, I uh, had listened to her biography. And so I bookmarked different references to Mary because I thought one day I might do something with that. Or Carol Houselander, her book, The yeah. Root of God. So whenever she had an interesting point, I bookmarked it on the audio. So, uh, it, uh, so I've gone back then and I've tried to find uh, you know, as I listen to the audio, I'm like, okay, this is where it is. It's in chapter, whatever. So then I'm trying to find the exact line. So, so the experience of your husband who listens and then goes back and rereads, uh, I've done that myself, especially in research purposes. Yeah, absolutely. It just takes you deeper and deeper into the work. So we talked a little bit just a few moments ago about writing a book or about, uh, writing in a book. And obviously, if you go to the library and you check out a book, you're not going to be writing in that book. Do you prefer to own a book or do you borrow books? Like what's your what, what's your position on, on libraries, I guess, and their value? So I usually if there's a book that I do not think I'm going to be reviewing, studying or using for research, I will I will rent it from the library especially if it's going to be a contemporary popular novel. Those are probably the ones that I get most often from the library, things that I want to enjoy, um, but it's not necessarily going to turn into work for me. And as someone who reads for a living, <laughs> I have to always differentiate between those things that are my work books and those things that are just for fun. Um, a lot of times when I talk to people about the, the life of a reader, I talk about it in terms of meals and, and diets there are certain things that are just dessert <laughs> and you don't want to make up a whole meal of them. Those are usually my library books or my desserts and everything else, like the meat of what I'm doing normally has to be bought. Um, and, and I, I spend way too much money on books, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it's my work supplies. So I get to kind of, you know, write that off because I'm going to spend so much money on books. But um, but I do, I even have like my little, my, several different post-its next to me. I keep them available, different styles and um, ways of marking all my pages and, and keeping in touch with what I've read. 
So maybe just a few questions now, kind of, uh, I don't know if you call it rapid fire, but just a little bit about your own personal reading, uh, as we've talked about spiritual reading, its value, its purpose, and, and such. But what, what's the first book you remember reading uh, in your life? So maybe maybe it's like a chapter book as, as you were growing up as a reader or something, but the first book you remember. Yeah, the first book I remember, I've talked about this before, is The the Golden Egg, and I can't remember the author right now. It's the same woman who wrote Goodnight Moon. So children, people who love children's literature are going to be mad at me that I can't remember her name. It's Margaret Wise, maybe, something like that. Um, but it's a book about like what is in the egg, and a little bunny is like kicking an egg and trying to figure out what's in an egg. And the mystery of that was just... I mean, I ended up imitating it and writing my own little book at five about, you know, what else could be in the egg besides yeah. a chick, you know, could it be an alien? Could it be a person? Like, how would that work? Um, so I just remember the mystery of literature, the, the engagement, the fact that it made me question things that I took for granted, you know, about what was in an egg. <laughs> you know, as I talk with some of these families and I visit their homes and I see the books that their kids are reading, I, I often remark to their parents, you know, there's one series of books that I wish I could go back and reread now as an adult, because I think that I would remember it, I'd appreciate it, but I just have this remembrance of uh, the boxcar children. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember the premise of it. I don't know anything <laughs> about them, but I want to go back one day and read the boxcar children. So, well, there's 150 of them on Audible because I have children. So we listen to them all the time. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's how I could listen. Uh, how about a book that has left a huge impression on you, maybe has become the, the philosophy of your life? Oh, the Brothers Karamazov is the first one that comes to mind. So I, I've lived in the Brothers Karamazov since I was 21, maybe um, the first time that I read it. And it made a huge impression on me at that time. And I just read it over and over again. I probably read it every year for over a decade and continually go back to it and try to teach it as often as possible. So that that's a book that I mean, I've translated sections of it from the Russian I, I know it internally yeah. <laughs> and, and I see through its eyes. It's hard for me to go a day without quoting Dostoevsky. Wow. Okay. And, and I, he, he was the author of crime and punishment. Is that right too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that was required reading in 11th or 12th grade English. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, do you think sometimes the reading required in English classes today, like, is maybe something that can't be valued by by the generation reading it? I think it's poorly taught. And I don't mean to to disparage English teachers. So my mom, my mom is a public school history teacher. And so I am very appreciative of what teachers do. I do a lot of professional development for teachers. I go into classrooms quite a bit, um, I more than a dozen times a year and talk to teachers about how to teach, especially literature. And what I find is that there's a there's a system of requirements that take the craft of teaching away from the teacher. And so if you have a book like Crime and Punishment that a teacher really wants to teach and she wants to enjoy with the students, a lot of times the requirements of the school is making them assess according to quizzes, dissecting the, the work of literature like it's a science project, um, turning it into the student's opinion on the work and really destroying the love of that book. So it's not that a 17-year-old can't be captivated by Crime and Punishment. Walker Percy was, for example, but when you you have to be captivated in a certain way you have to love the book you can't destroy the book with analysis as a 17 year old right you don't even know how to appreciate it 
imaginatively, that has to be the first step is enjoying it at that level. What's a book you often recommend to people? Oh, uh, well, when it comes to reading and the reading life, I recommend C.S. Lewis's Experiment and Criticism or Surprised by Joy. Those probably are two of the reading books that I most highly recommend. Um, I mean, I find myself recommending all sorts of books. Books are like, to me, they're like ice cream flavors or they're, you know, there's something where they, they have a different way of fitting a different person. And so if I find that someone really loves, you know, sci-fi, I recommend Ursula Le Guin or Walker Percy or something like that. Um, if I find that someone loves realistic literature, I, I more often recommend Wendell Berry or Walter Wengerin Jr. or something like that. Um, so it really depends on what what kinds of books draw you in as a reader, right? And speak to you. What's a classic book everybody should read before they die? Oh, the Odyssey. <laughs> thing that comes, it's a starting place for that journey if i was gonna just start a classic you just start with the odyssey you dive into to that human story because we're all on that pilgrimage uh, what book are you reading now um i'm reading in hedwana which is a collection of the f- world's first author it's poetry it's by a sumerian poet who is a priestess and um, they just discovered all of these stones with her writing on it. And she tells that she's the author. It's from 2300 BC. Yeah. So it's just, it's shocking my world right now. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that in your book, I think, and maybe even reference oh, it as one of the oldest books, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. I just, I have not, I had not read it when I wrote my book. So I, it just came out. Okay. Um, so this is an advanced reader copy. Um, and I'm reading it right now for the first time. So. Okay. Well, I've heard about it at least. So if okay. you didn't write about it in the book, uh, somehow I came across that myself. Okay. So, well, uh, I probably wrote about it on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Uh, how about a book that you might be that that you would reread? So you already mentioned uh, the brothers, uh, the long K word I can never can pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, any other books that you you have reread yourself? Oh yeah, um, I mean I read I reread quite a few texts like every single year, trying to get back to the stories. Flannery O'Connor is the one that comes to mind because I find myself reading her probably the most often. And I could read her just for fun. Like if I just sit down and just want to reread her her works. Um, one of the joys of getting to be a teacher is that I get to reread everything every single year. So <laughs> I think sure. that's, you know, teaching the great books means that I really get to invest in rereading. Definitely. Yeah. Well, w- what is the value of, you know, you've read a book. So mm-hmm. you, you've read a novel, you've read a spiritual book. What's the value of going back and returning to it? Yeah. Well, new things come to light at different times in your life. For example, Kristen Lovren's Daughter is one of my favorite novels, my top 10 probably. And when I read that the first time I was in my early 20s, I was not a wife, I was not a mother. And I loved her journey. I was really captivated by the romance of this main character, you know, this epic struggle between her will and God's will. But then I read it again as a wife and a mother and saw new things that I hadn't seen. You know, the way she talks about nursing is very related to capturing what, what God says in Isaiah, like, can I forget you the way, you know, the way a woman nursing cannot forget her child, nor will I forget Israel. And it's like, those things struck me in new ways, reading it the next time through. 
So I think every time I return to a work, I'm in a different place. I'm in a different season and things speak to me or come out of the book that I didn't see the first time through. Yeah, I think we see that a lot too, for example, as a preacher. So Mm -hmm. in the Catholic tradition, being on a lectionary cycle every three years, every Sunday, it's every three years, every that Sunday, it's the same readings, right? So, Mm -hmm. So you're always returning. And even just having celebrated Easter, it's always the same gospel for Easter Sunday. So so you're always returning to the scriptures in that sense, uh, in the lectionary. But of course, uh, it's often pointed out that what, what speaks to me this year or what I'm drawn to this year, you know, isn't probably what I'm going to be drawn to in three years from now. And, and for me, as a person that records my homilies and publishes them, it's always interesting. Sometimes I do go back and I try to find three years ago, what did I preach on this weekend? And how is, and what is my message different this weekend uh, than, than that? three years previous. So uh, I think we do encounter that, especially with the word of God, uh, just yeah. how it speaks to us in whatever situation we're facing in our life. Well, and and with the word, so I read the scripture, you know, I do the Bible in a year in a different way every single year. And I try to do a different translation every year so that I can constantly hear it fresh. I do this with other literature too. I just reread Julian of Norwich's showings only like three weeks ago. And I was just reading a new translation because when you hear it in a new translation each time, you start to hear things that maybe had become overly familiar to you. Yeah, wow. Yeah, there's there, there's such a great value, uh, I guess, to returning to the work, hearing different, uh, hearing different translations, as you mentioned. So... Uh, well, your book is called Reading for the Love of God, and uh, I think that it'll really teach people how to read. Uh, I I made notes uh, as I was going through it and uh, really valued it and, and appreciate this conversation. So if people want to learn more about you, if people want to pick up your book, uh, how, did they, how do you recommend them doing that? So one of my favorite bookstores, a local bookstore is called Eighth Day Books in Wichita, Kansas. So they always carry my books. So I would go, if you're going to get a copy, get it from a local bookstore, even if it's online, uh, eighth day books is fantastic. And following me, I, I love teaching. I try to make my social media more like a syllabus in a sense, you know, here's some discussion questions and here's some recommended reading. And, um, I try to engage in that way, making it like a larger classroom, but it also means that I would love emails. I would love to talk to people about their reading lives and their reading habits. So I'm available. Um, you can actually just Google my name, jessicahootenwilson.com and, and send me emails through that. Yeah. I think one of the things people listening to this episode today, uh, what you can do is go back, re-listen to this, just as you would reread a book and write <laughs> down some of these names of the yeah. authors you've mentioned today. And because there's a lot of authors you mentioned I, I've not heard of, I've not personally read. And so uh, it might be valuable to maybe pick up an unknown author and, and to dive deeper into their work and to see what their their uh, their story might be able to tell you. Well, and it's one of the things I appreciate about what I got to do in reading for the love of God, because there's that whole appendix. Yes. It's a reading from nursery to the grave. <laughs> so lots of book recommendations uh, that you also recommend uh, in your book. So, well, thanks so much, Jessica, for joining me today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you.